Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Ask Unity podcast, episode 73. For those of you new to the show, I'm comedian Simon Kane. And this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people for the worlds of stand-up, radio, writing, and today, TV. Chris Sussman is the recently appointed Head of Comedy at BBC Studios, which means he's uniquely positioned to look at the current and future output of comedy, but not just at the BBC, but on other channels as well, as BBC Studios moves from an in-house operation to a commercial one. We talked about what a typical day looks like for him, if the BBC should be responsible for working to not cause offence in its viewers, his take on Netflix and other on-demand services, and so much more. I think this podcast would be great for anyone looking to try and sell their idea into the BBC, as well as a writer looking to get their work seen by the right people who work in telly. As always, any thoughts or opinions Chris gives are his own and are not representative of the BBC, so please always be mindful of that. If you're new here, please do hit that subscribe button. If you're old here, please do think about giving us an honest review in iTunes. Before I forget, quick plug for some of the things I'm working on personally outside of podcasting. If you are in Leicester and you would like to see a work-in-progress version of my new show, which is called Laughter is the Best Placebo, at 9pm at The Exchange. It's a free show, so pay what you want on exit, and it would really be nice to meet some of you there. Also, the day before that, in Leicester, at Pat's Pizzeria, I'm doing our third live Q&A podcast with a bunch of Midlands promoters. So if you would like to come down to that, if you're a performer, a comedian a person who wants to get into comedy, a person who wants to get into promoting, any of those things, please look up the details. They're in the Facebook group and they're on my website. Please come down and support. Both of them are free entry and the podcast one actually isn't a donation thing at all. So if you want to donate, you have to do it on my website. Additional to that, my LGBTQ night is running in London on the 12th of February at Angel Comedy Club and there are still a few tickets left at the Bill Murray so please come down if you can make it like I said there aren't a massive amount of tickets left but it would be great if it could sell out so if you can afford five pounds to come down and support that that'd be great if you want to know more about that night check it out on my website all the details are there thank you but now without any more delays this is Chris 
Sussman. So I'm Chris Sussman. I'm head of comedy at BBC Studios, which means I look after the comedy production that the BBC makes, which means that essentially I look after all of the production that is made in-house at the BBC, which is roughly sort of 40 to 50% of all the comedy, uh, scripted comedy that is made, the BBC, both TV and radio, which is about 80% of the radio, which means I look after the department that makes everything, get involved in scripts, in casting, in editing... Yeah, I sort of do it all, really. (laughs) And and what's your relationship like, but also what's your relationship with the writer's room? We don't have... I don't have a huge relationship with the writer's room. I mean, I, I should point out, I started this job about six months ago. I haven't had much to do with the writer's room. So, so I, I, I sort of had a, a weird dual path when I started out. I started in TV production, so my first job was a, as a runner on The Big Breakfast at Planet 24, and sort of worked my way up in the entertainment side of things as a sort of runner, researcher, assistant producer, producer, series producer, exec, etc. Doing mostly sort of entertainment shows and comedy entertainment stuff. And then at the same time, I was writing comedy with a friend I, I was sort of uh, deluded into thinking I might be a good comedy writer quickly discovered that I wasn't uh, having written a few sketches on some sketch shows like Monkey Dust Peter Serafinowicz show Manstroke Woman also wrote three series of a Radio 4 sitcom and those two worlds sort of collided when I got a job at the BBC doing comedy commissioning which I did for five years and then I got this job okay what does a typical day look like for you then there is probably no such thing as a typical day <laughs> if that doesn't sound too cliched some days I will be out on set, visiting sets, seeing stuff filmed. Some days I'll be in the edit, Uh, some days I'll be in the office reading scripts. A lot of meetings, I would say. My life is probably 70% meetings, you know, with writers, uh, with producers, with directors, etc. But I'm very lucky, you know, I I genuinely love my job. It's a rare day when I wake up in the morning and there's not something that I'm looking forward to, I'd say. That's pretty nice. Yeah, lucky me. (laughs) Yeah. And in terms of you finding ideas for shows, what's the process of them, A, getting in front of you, in terms of like how many layers and how many different types of people does that go through? And what's the process of it going from you to, say, BBC production or in the production house for the BBC for another channel? Because I know that's the point of... Yeah, well, we're not doing any of that yet. So that'll that'll be next year. So at the moment, we just make stuff for the BBC. Right. So in terms of the process of ideas, you know, I have a brilliant team here of great development producers and execs in both radio and TV. I guess they do a large amount of the filtering for me. You know, they read a lot of scripts, work out projects that, that they like themselves. And when they get something to a stage that, you know, they're really, where it's something they're really keen on, then they'll bring it to me and we'll have a chat about it. And I guess either I'll like it or not. But, you know, I try and you know, back people and, and support the stuff that they really like and they're really passionate about. And then there's there's sort of some projects that I just develop, I guess, directly myself. You know, I guess the good thing about coming to this job from the commissioning job is that I had some, you know, relation number of relationships with writers that I really liked. So when I started here, was instantly able to kick off some developments with people that I really wanted to work with and, and bring into, into BBC Studios. I've sort of got two questions from the back of that. Then. Okay. Um, I suppose I'll start with this one. If a cynical comedian was listening to this who had an idea for a show or a script and felt like the BBC is a bit tied up in the terms of the agencies of comedians that you know Avalon or PBJ or any of the big ones and as a result doesn't feel like they can get through what would be your response to something like that? Well I think I guess my first response would say that there are 
you know, thousands and thousands of people that want to write for TV and for radio, and there's only a limited number of slots. So inevitably there are going to be people that are going to be disappointed and frustrated and think the process doesn't work. But ultimately, as I said, there's a limited number of slots, so so there has to be some sort of filtering mechanism. The agents sort of act as a, as a filtering mechanism for us, because if stuff comes to us through an agent, we know that it has it has had someone someone has uh, thought about it and likes it and is passing it on to us for a reason and you know there are certain agents that you will work with and you will learn to trust their tastes or at least you think they've got similar tastes to you so when they send you something you think oh that's interesting if they like it then there's a good chance that I might like it as well I wouldn't say we have any particular relationships with any agencies so it's not like we just make Avalon shows. I work with a huge number of writers from all sorts of different agencies from Casarotto and Independent and United and Curtis Brown. I mean my, my first advice to any you know new writer wanting to get their scripted comedy onto TV or onto radio would be to get an agent so I think you know that is a, a, a an unavoidable step okay so you, how many independent comedians would you say you work with at the moment when you say comedians do you, do you mean writers writers or, or yeah, performers should we stick should we stick with the label of writer rather sure. than comedian because this, this well, it, well, it, well I mean obviously we work with comedians so we've just got you know a Johnny Vegas thing commissioned for instance on, on BBC One but he's a comedian who's in it yeah. and it's being written by two other writers okay. then we have projects like Sunny D which is written by Dane Baptiste who is a comedian mm. so I guess it depends whether you just mean how many comedians we're working with or, or whether you're talking specifically about the writing I see what you're saying let's say how many independent freelance performers are you working with at the moment well everyone's independent and freelance oh okay no I'm I, talking about alright let's do it another way people who don't have representation how many oh. of those do you work with on a regular basis uh I don't know, but I suspect it would be extremely small because when we make something, we have to do contracts with people, so they have to have agents and representation. So it's very rare to to work with someone who represents themselves. I mean, I I would not advise any writer or comedian to represent themselves. So in many ways, it's not necessarily the agent being a shortcut to getting on. It's just a case of logistically, they're easier to work with in a way because they've got someone who knows how to negotiate that for them. Well, it, yeah, it's it's both. I would say, you know, this industry is about having people fighting your corner, whether that's a producer that really champions you to a broadcaster or a commissioner who really cha- champions you to the head of BBC One. You need an agent who's really going to champion you to production companies and is going to fight to get the best deal for you when those production companies mm. want to work with you. Yeah. Okay. When you're looking for TV shows and when you're after something, I remember uh, in that interview I was talking to you about before we started, uh, you said the the next big thing is always the thing that surprises you. Yeah. It's not something you can predict trend-wise. I think that's true, yeah. And in case, in the case of the the way that a lot of comedians sort of badmouth comedy on sure. TV now is they'll sort of go, oh, look, Mrs. Brown's Boys won, whatever. They're never going to want my adventurous comedy about, you know, snakes and ladders or something like that, yeah. right? So how would you say you're surprised in a general comedy sense? Like, what surprises Every, you? Well, Mrs. Brown's Boys is hugely surprising. I mean, people, <laughs> people, people always point to that. People should not underestimate, I would say. I mean, I, I should point out I had nothing to do with it, uh, you know, getting commissioned and becoming a success. I can't claim anything on that. But, but the people that did, that was a hugely brave decision to put on primetime BBC a man dressed up as a woman who swears a lot. Uh, at, you know, it would be very easy to have dismissed that 
and yet it is by far and away the most successful comedy for years and years and years. You know, we did a live special earlier this summer, which got 11 and a half million people watching it. You know, in compared to today's ratings, it's it's as big as Sherlock, it's as big as Downton Abbey, it's as big as Doctor Who. It does a tremendous amount for comedy in terms of, you know, boosting the profile of, of the comedy industry. But that's just one thing. You, you know, there are a huge number of channels making huge um, variety of comedy. So right at the other spectrum, you've got Fleabag on BBC. BBC Three, love that show. Which, yeah, well, <laughs> which a lot of people in the comedy industry, I would say, you know, are much more positive about than something like Mrs. Brown's Boys. But it is a very different type of show. So I think it, it would be silly to to point at comedy and go, oh, only stuff like Mrs. Brown's Boys gets on when you've clearly got, uh, you know, you've got Fleabag at one end, you've got Mrs. Brown's Boys at the other, and you've got everything in between. You know, there's hundreds of different types of shows. I, I suppose also something that I always, I don't say yell at, but I, I get really frustrated when, when I'm talking to a comedian who yeah. says something like this, is does your idea fit the channel you're trying to get it on? Because half the time, I don't necessarily feel like it would. Yeah. Or, or I feel like they want it on a certain, like they want it on the BBC for the kudos yeah. of the BBC. Yeah. When it might work better on Dave because it's a panel show format or, or something sure. like that. And so I suppose, are there any specific branding ideas or specific things that different channels are looking for that you're after? Well, well, a I'm a seller. I'm not a buyer, so I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I make shows and I, I sell ideas to the, uh, the BBC, to the to the channels and the commissioning team. I only do scripted comedy, so I can't speak for you know pure stand-up or panel shows or comedy entertainment ideas. But what I would say to anyone is, look at how many channels there are that make stuff these days. If you can't find one to make the show that you that you know that you've written or that you really want to make. Maybe you should. Maybe it's time to have another idea. Maybe it's time to write something else. Because I genuinely believe that for if your show is really great and there is a market for it, then you will find it somewhere. That you will find a channel wanting to put it on. And you said that you're a seller of ideas, essentially. Yeah. And obviously, you've mentioned that the numbers of viewership figures are going down on TV. Yeah. Or they're not. They're not on the steady incline. Incline. That yeah, they might yeah, have been yeah. 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 How are you finding selling ideas has changed for you then? Is it a case of you now have to just pitch and say it'll hit a million users or a million, no. million people instead of... No, you never have those sorts of conversations. I, I think it's very hard you know, when you're doing this to try and second guess how successful something is going to be. Nobody would have second guessed that Mrs. Brown's Boys would have got 11.5 million. You know, when The Office came along, no one would have predicted that was going to be a hit. And in fact, it wasn't a hit until the second series. That's what I think I mean when about, about you know, the next big big hit is surprising because you just don't know what it's going to be. So no, you can't, there's no point trying to sell something and say it's going to get this X number of, view, of, of viewers or listeners. You just don't know. So all you can do is go on your instincts and you, you sell it by saying, here's a script, I really love it, I hope you do too. I Because uh, when I spoke to Ian Coyle at, at Dave, oh, yeah. he was telling me that he's essentially an ad man rather than a commissioner because the channel's funded by advertising. Right. He has to sell it and say, we think we'll be able to sell an advert in the middle of this for right. this brand that will right. cover you know, the costs of making it kind of thing. What is a sales pitch look like for you? Like say, what's the, so that Johnny Vate, can we talk about that Johnny Vate? Yeah, yeah of course, yeah. Was that your sell? No, uh, I mean, I, I was, I was the, the pilot had already been commissioned when I started this job. Okay. There was a producer called, uh, or in fact, exec called Rebecca Papworth who in fact produced that pilot and it, you know it was something that she worked up with Johnny and she got the writers involved and yeah you know it was a real passion project for her I, I, I think in a way comedy is the easiest thing in the world to try and sell because 
as I said, you just do it via a script that you love. So for me, selling is no more complicated, really, than going to, to you know, the head of comedy commissioning at the BBC and giving him a script that I really love and saying, please read this. And sometimes you do a bit more. Sometimes you try and package it up. You know, you'll attach some cast. You'll attach a great director. You might do some additional work, like look at what a series might look like. But really, ultimately, it comes down to the writing. So people wouldn't send a script to you. They would send it to where? Or would they send it direct to you? Yeah, some, sometimes people send scripts to me. Yeah, agents will send me a script. Right, and, and in case of, because you said there are certain layers to go through sometimes to get to you. Uh, I don't think I said that. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, I think I, what, what, I, what I said is that, you know, I have a, I have a, a team, okay. all of whom will be working up projects and, and they'll be filtering stuff out themselves and bringing them right. to me. But people still bring stuff to me directly as well, yeah. Well, no, I was, I was only trying to segue slightly because I read an article and I don't know how true it was because it was on the Daily Mail, so I don't know how much I yeah. trust it, but it was where you were talking about, and I, well, I don't want to misquote you, but you were talking about the levels of hierarchy that a gag needs to go through now at the BBC. Okay, yeah, well, for, for, so, uh, yes, that was misquoted, okay. unsurprisingly, uh, it being in the media. Uh, secondly, that was a comment that I made when I was doing an entirely different job. So right. that's when I was in, in commissioning. Now, what I said then, I, I, that was during a BAFTA... I was sitting on a BAFTA panel talking about offence in comedy and there was a Q&A at the end and someone asked me what has been the hardest joke you've ever had to try and get put on air and I said, which was obviously cut out, that actually I think, you know, my five years of commissioning I found the compliance process pretty easy and there weren't a lot of things that I wasn't allowed to say or that, you know, I had to say to the shows that I was working on you can't say say that. Most of the time, you know, particularly if something's funny you, you're, allowed to, you're allowed to get away with I mean, you look at something like Fleabag, you know, where I think the Times called it the filthiest show that had ever been on TV, which I would slightly dispute. But, you know, I think a lot of people might be surprised that that would be on the BBC because of, you know, some quite strong sort of sexual content in it. But no, with that one, so I I just gave a very specific example of a joke that was quite sensitive and had to go all the way up to, to the Director General. But that was a very, very rare Example, very rare exception. Most of the time, I would say the process is pretty simple. I mean, g- given that humour is so subjective, yeah, and it comes down to the context of the way you're doing it and, yeah. and everything around it. When you're trying to, well, on the rare times that you are trying to say to someone, this is actually quite funny. Yeah, has there ever been a time where the other person has been like, I don't find this funny? Um, in, in what what do you mean? Do you mean in terms of like pitching an idea, or are you talking specifically about like offence and and compliance and so stuff? So specifically an idea. So say you had a, a show idea or a show that you were trying to yeah. put through, and the person that you were taking it to, whichever channel yeah. commissioner it was, goes, I, I I don't see why this. I love your opinions yeah. on stuff, yeah. but I just don't see where this is funny. Yeah. Yeah, well, you just have to deal with that. I mean, ultimately, you know, the, the the commissioning team, they have a job, and their job, again, it, you know, it's a similar thing in terms of they're getting pitched hundreds of ideas from lots of different production companies. They can't put them all, so they have to make decisions. So yeah. they make their decision, you just have to accept it. You know, and you, 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 sometimes you, you'll argue back. If there's something you're really passionate about, you'll argue back more. But it's very rare, I think, you'll win that battle if, it's, if they don't find it funny and you do. There's not a lot you can do, you know. Mm. And I suppose the, the culture of offence in general is something yeah. that's quite, I wouldn't say a hot topic, but it's something that has been covered quite a lot in comedy yeah. in terms of is it is it the BBC's responsibility to shield people from stuff that might offend them? Or, you know, even things like the watershed, like is that still, is that too early now still because people are going to bed later? And, uh, you know, what what's your opinion on how that stuff's changing and how offence is being taken or 
Um, it, no, maybe just that. Yeah, well, it's a very, very complicated issue, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and I think the answer is there are no blanket rules. You take every every case, every joke, you look at it and you make a decision on it. Sometimes you say, yeah, that's going to offend people. That's what we want it to do. You know, that's the point of that joke. Uh, and it's a clever joke. And within the context of the programme that it's going to go in, that's fine. So, you know, you, I worked on shows with people like Harry Enfield and Charlie Brooker and Frankie Boyle and you know they're you know they're, they they sail close to the wind sometimes but that's what you want them to do and there's a, you know there's an audience that like that and that want that then on other examples you might have a show that is pre-watershed on BBC One and you look at a joke you go actually you know what that's going to offend people but in a bad way and you know the point of this show is not really to offend people and we're, we're not looking to do that so we're going to take that one out but there, there are no there are no set rules really you just sort of look at everything and it's a very the very murky waters the waters of offence and some people are going to get offended whatever and some of those people you have to ignore and then if too many people get offended you maybe have a think to yourself and you think actually we've probably crossed the line with that one do you ever have you or have you ever had to apologize for something that you've put out or that you've pushed forward to go out that a lot of people have found offensive that you still probably don't find offensive because you obviously pushed it forward so you wouldn't have done no, <laughs> I can't. I can't <laughs> it's a good think. Sign. I can't think of a time. And you know that. You know, I, I worked on a lot of shows, and a lot of which have had fairly strong content. Some of them have caused a minor amount of offence, and you get a, you know a handful of complaints. I've never had anything that's caused like a barrage of complaints. The way that people, the society has changed in terms of PC culture, but also in terms of becoming more accepting of different groups of people, yeah. have you found that that has changed how offence is being taken? Yeah, you, you, I th- well, I think society changes, and what people find acceptable and don't changes with it. And we obviously have to change with that. So yeah, there are things that you look at that were made in the 60s and 70s, and sometimes they make you wince, and you think, oh, we, we probably wouldn't do that today. But weirdly, they're not. It's not always the things that people think. So people always refer to things like, uh, sorry, to um, Alf Garnet, uh, "Till Death Us Do Part," and, and "Sickness and In Health." And people people use that as a barometer, saying, "Oh, you wouldn't get away with that today." Actually, I think you would. And I think you know, Alf Garnet was an incredibly sharp comic creation, and you weren't you know you weren't watching him to agree with some of his views. You were, he, he was a satirical character; it was satirising a certain type of society. And I think something like that would be fine today, in the way that you might have you know David Brent fifteen years ago said a lot of things that were on PC but you weren't ever supposed to be laughing with him you were laughing at him so I think that would be fine but then there are certain things that were just that that you watch now you know that from from 60s 70s even 80s that make you feel uncomfortable because they were a product of their time and they have certain things that feel instinctively they feel racist or they feel misogynistic or they feel homophobic and you think you know what we're not so comfortable with those views today because society has moved on you know in a good way and so we probably wouldn't make that sort of comment anymore definitely i am um, i went down to a, a meeting about the bbc uh, charter you know, oh, yeah. the thing that's changed. I, I'll quickly explain what that is for anyone who doesn't know. Or do you want to do it? it no, be... no, go for it. <laughs> Please. Let's see if I get this if wrong. If you can explain to me, I'd love it. <laughs> uh, as I understand it, it's every 10 years you guys have a review point with the government and internally to discuss the future of the programming for the BBC. Is that about right? Yeah, very good. I think it's 11 years now. Oh, was it 11 but years? It was 10 years. Yeah, very good. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'll edit that. Um, <laughs> 
But um, yeah, and and what they said was, as you will know, well, I assume, <laughs> is the 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 new direction they want to go in is for fresh innovative content uh, being more bold with content and trying to make brands that with distinct sorry brands with more distinction within the channels yeah that's what the government said that, yeah yeah how do you feel about that uh, I mean it, it, uh, yes I agree with all that we should be doing all of that but it sort of comes with an assumption that we're not trying to do that <laughs> you know of course everyone is always you know you, you have thousands of people at the BBC and in fact all television channels constantly trying to come up with bold original new programming it's not always easy <laughs> and you don't always get it right but certainly we try to do that it was like John Whittingdale st- stood up in the House of Common- Commons and said the BBC should make more shows like 40 Towers as if we're all s- sitting here not trying to find a show that is going to go down in history as probably the greatest comedy show of all time of course we're trying to do that but you know those shows a those shows don't come along very often they're sort of once in a generation and b you always look back at stuff fondly people i think particularly with comedy actually more than any other genre people are always very very critical of what's going out uh, at the moment and always look back and go oh remember that time when Forty Towers was on, and Porridge was on, and Only Fools and Horses was on. Conveniently forgetting all the terrible shows that were that were made then, that have obviously uh, gone gone, um, you know, been forgotten in the annals of history. And I look at all the shows, you know, even in recent history, you look at The Office and Gavin and Stacey and Miranda and, and Inbetweeners and Catastrophe and Fleabag and Mum. You know, there's some really great shows being made. You know, in the last. 10, 15 years, and, and on TV today, Peep Show, the thick of it. I think these shows, will, you know, people will look back and, and remember fondly, but it's very easy to look at the current state of TV and be cynical about it and not, I, I guess, it, it's always a golden age when you look back. It's never a golden age when you're in it, put it like that. No, I think that's pretty reasonable. <laughs> and I'm not saying, by the way, that, that this will necessarily be looked at as a golden age, but I guess what I'm saying is I think uh, people look at the bad and they don't look at the good. Oh, for definite. I think I think you rose colour stuff very easily. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, sorry, go on. No, no, that's exactly that. So it sort of annoys me when when John Wissendale said that because I thought it, it it shows I guess a lack of knowledge and a lack of sort of appreciation about the industry and about you know what there's a lot of very very talented comedy writers, very talented producers and directors out there making some brilliant stuff and trying to make brilliant stuff. Do you think it's a case of because he doesn't work in the same way you do in this industry that he just I mean if he came in and followed you around for a day yeah. or a week or something he might have a different perspective uh, on absolutely it's very easy to look at out from outside any industry and be critical of it oh yeah yeah well that's the main point of yeah. this this podcast is to let people see that yeah. you're not just like sitting well, it's there great. going yeah I mean it's the equivalent of me standing up and going I think the government should make more money should make the economy better you know it's easy it's easy yeah. to say isn't it but it's not necess- necessarily so easy to do yeah I mean no, I can't be going to be able to say on that. If you're able to explain what BBC Studios yeah, is going sure. to do next year in terms sure. of... Sure, so, so BBC Studios is... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Basically, the new uh, branding for BBC in-house production, um, and essentially we're becoming a commercial entity, so we're moving outside of the public license, so we won't be publicly funded by the license fee. We will be funded by the money that we make from the programmes that we make. Uh, so traditionally we have always had a guaranteed number of hours called the in-house guarantee that we made at the BBC. That's disappearing. But in exchange for that, we are now able to make shows outside of the BBC. So we can go and make shows for ITV or Channel 4 or in America or whatever. Do you want to... Are you able to talk about how your pitches are going to work next year in terms of out externally? Like how you're going to look for programs to take to other channels rather than internally with people you kind of already know yeah I think um, in truth it will probably work exactly the same in that we will be developing some comedy shows that we really love with some writers that we really believe in and we will try and sell them and you know we will try and sell them to the BBC or we will try and sell them elsewhere there's not a great amount of difference I think you know maybe sometimes you will we will be able to develop a project that we will think you know what, I couldn't I couldn't think where that would sit on the BBC, but it's perfect for X channel over there. But in, in general, you know, the BBC has four channels with very different sort of remits. So it's hard to think of a type of show, type of comedy show, that wouldn't find a home somewhere on the BBC. Would it just be a show then that you didn't have a slot for on the BBC that you would still want to get made? Yeah, potentially. Or, or you know, there will be shows that we will potentially develop specifically for... Netflix or for Amazon or whatever but yeah I think I think the core part of our business which is working with writers that we really like and getting scripts into a shape that, that we really love and we want to take out and, and, and sell to people I think that will stay the same in terms of a, a sort of general theme that comes out of these podcasts yeah. is the uh, element of always looking for something new and a lot of the time that sort of manifests itself in someone younger uh, yeah. in terms of an age demographic and I wondered whether that is the case or you feel like that's the case in terms of TV whether um, if you're the young new face on the block in terms of a writer or a performer or whatever it has an advantage in terms of that's something that works well in a visual medium simply because of how society and media works or if it's a case of it doesn't make a difference and it's just whether it's funny yeah I think <laughs> or it, both. <laughs> no I think whether it's funny that's the only thing that matters I mean again you look at Brendan O'Carroll you know has been doing that show for 20 years on stage before he had his sort of TV breakthrough you know Ricky Gervais wasn't you know a teenager when he when he came in but then you've got the other end of the spectrum I guess you've got the in-betweeners they were all sort of relatively new young faces on screen although the guys that were writing it had, been, had you know worked in TV and been around for a while I don't think anything matters other than is it funny and in terms of selling mm. what's the hardest part of that for you 
Oh, I guess the hardest part is when you really believe in a project and uh, the person you're selling to doesn't see that and you just have to sort of swallow it and, and, uh, and you know, until now, traditionally, if we've had a project turned down by the BBC, it, you know, that's the end of the line for it because we could only sell there. But I guess the advantage of being able to go to, to other channels and other broadcasters around the world is we've, we, you know, we can get a second chance at, at trying to sell stuff elsewhere. Is that also the biggest logistical problem in terms of trying to get it made, or is that just just the biggest problem in general? Um, what do you mean? So you you produce the show, so like yeah. as in the script will come in once yeah. it's been commissioned, you'll yeah. actually go out and make the set and the production yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there is a if there's a big problem in the logistical side as well as in the selling side itself that you particularly nickels at you or is annoying. Um, no, we we never have enough money. <laughs> To make stuff, <laughs> that's always the way. You know, budgets uh, have been squeezed for years and years, so there's never enough money to match the ambitions of the scripts. But you know, you you do the best you can, and as I said, we're you know, this is an amazing job, and we're all incredibly lucky to be doing it. It's a real privilege to get to make comedy that you love. So can't complain too much. What do you think is the biggest misconception of your job for someone who's outside of the business? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if people would know what my job was outside the business and what I do. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. What would you if you if you didn't if you knew you existed, yeah. you weren't you, yeah, and you were looking in on the BBC, uh, yeah. the, the, the the hierarchy, yeah. What would you think your job is? <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? Like, if someone doesn't know, and they just look at it and go, "Well, where does he fit into this?" No, I think I I think. You know, I'm head of comedy at BBC Studios. I think once people know what BBC Studios is, in that we make shows, I think they probably pretty much know what my job was. I don't know. I don't think there are. I don't. I, I don't know. No, fair enough. No, I always I always find it interesting what people perceive that the mis- misconceptions are about what they do it are. Yeah. Because generally speaking, like you said, if you've got an outside of you yeah. of, of that person or that industry, yeah, it, it can easily look like th- what you think they do is not what they actually do. I think I do what people would think I would do. <laughs> so, I, so I think I, uh, it's all right on that front. Okay, fair enough then. And when you're when you're scouting for ideas, yeah, do you? I mean, do you go to things like the Edinburgh Fringe or to comedy yeah. clubs and things yeah. like that? Yeah. What What are you looking for in those situations? Oh, you God, it's impossible to say. You just look for something that uh, excites you. You know, an interesting voice type of joke you haven't heard before. Um, I guess specifically for scripted comedy when you're going to see stand-up you think this you might think this is an amazing bit of stand-up but what's what would be the script at the end of this so you probably look for for someone that tells interesting narratives uh for an interesting character i mean for instance you know when i went to see fleabag in edinburgh i think it was three years ago um and instantly saw that I think within about five minutes I thought this could be a brilliant TV series because she was doing a monologue she was telling a story as a character so the leap from what she was doing there to the final TV product was actually quite small Mm. and in terms of like we were talking about with the distinct branding for each of the channels Mm. what would you and obviously like we said it's it's not as science and it's not as easy as saying we're just looking for this yeah but what how would you define the branding of each of the channels that you sell to in the BBC? And what would you say is what they're not looking for then? Because it would make it easier for people to know yeah. that channel definitely wouldn't put that yeah. on. I never, I never say that 
that's what they're not looking for because it's too it's too prescriptive and as i said you know you need something that's going to surprise you if you're ruling out everything that you don't think is right then you you're going to rule out all the things that would come along and surprise you so i think that's quite a sort of um unconstructive thing to do inconstructive unconstructive non-constructive not constructive it's not a constructive thing to do um (laughs) the only thing i say to people when they're like firstly when i'm talking to writers i never tell them to think about the channels because they have to write what they want to write let us as the producers worry about what channel is going to be the best fit for it just write what you want to write but when 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 i'm talking to producers and we're thinking about what channel we might pitch to uh, the only thing i say is just know the content on the channel know what's on there it's amazing how many people you know when i was in commissioning how many production companies would come and pitch something for instance to bbc3 and i'd be like have you ever watched bbc3 because the show that you're pitching is currently on bbc3 it's the exact same idea so the only thing that to to avoid as producers is don't pitch something that is the same as what they already have you know because they're not going to want it they've already got it but apart from that i don't think anything should be off the menu and in terms of channel identities they're pretty obvious and again you just need to watch the channels to know what they are i can't believe there would be that many people that watch television or are interested in television that don't know what bbc1 bbc2 bbc3 and bbc4 are would you say that's fair i think it's fair but i think there's also very easy cliches that get chucked around yeah. about a channel or I mean when I, I was um, talking to Julia McKenzie at uh, uh, radio yeah. who was saying you know the, the cliche of the Radio 4 listener is nothing like the, the demographic that it brings in and obviously it will vary from, from show to show as well because yeah. you know certain shows will bring in a certain demographic yeah. and it just carries on throughout the day. Yeah. So, and also with technology in terms of podcasting for them, it means that you know it doesn't even matter if they are not available at the time slot they've got. Yeah. Anymore. It, and I assume that's the same with you with TV with the iPad. Yeah. It means that if I'm not available at six o'clock when you put it on, I can watch it whenever I want. Yeah. So, so I suppose I wondered if the identities were moulding or changing with technology, or whether that's just not having an impact on you at all. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't think at the moment. I think the channels still have, I would say, clear identities in terms of if you switch on BBC One or BBC Two, you could sort of, you could tell the difference in the shows between them. Although having said that, you know, there's a lot of crossover between them and successful shows like Miranda and The Office and The Great British Bake Off and The Apprentice that started on BBC Two, then grew and, and, you know, moved on to BBC One. Um... Whether in the future, in 10, 20, 30 years, those channels will, ha- will exist with those clear brand identities, I don't know. Because people do consume things in different ways. And it might be that, you know, you switch on your telly in 30 years and it's not a schedule, but there's, you know, just options. Do you want to watch some comedy? Do you want to watch some drama? Do you want to watch some documentaries? You know, and you watch things like that. But certainly at the moment, I would say... I think the channel identities are pretty clear and are hopefully alive and well. Something I find really interesting is that when... So say you moved the show from BBC One to BBC Two for whatever reason. Yeah. It wouldn't tend to change the show too much in terms of, like, you'd be doing it because it needs to move time slot or something like that, as I understand it. But when you move it from, like, BBC Two to iPlayer, it also doesn't change. But the way you watch it does... 
because you'll often I mean if I'm on my laptop it's near I'm nearer the screen naturally just yeah. even on that front yeah. or or or, or, um, or it's later at night and it's not at the time you you yeah. predicted it would be best for me to watch it yeah so I wondered what you your take on the way technology is affecting how people are consuming stuff yeah. is going well not I mean nothing moves from BBC2 to iPlayer uh, iPlayer is just obviously the catch up service for BBC programming so every program and they do do some original programming of their own well, it's quite a small um, amount of stuff at the moment but every show that you watch on iPlayer pretty much is a BBC1 show a BBC2 show a BBC3 show or a BBC4 show and in terms of how how that changes or how, how people watching stuff on catch-up... I guess what, what your question is, does the fact that people often watch stuff on their phones now, does that change the type of shows that we make? Is that... Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would say a little bit for BBC Three, because obviously that is now an entirely digital channel. It is available on its, you know, on its web portal and on YouTube and on Facebook and other social media channels. And so we've made content on BBC Three is now it's not it doesn't have to be rigorously 30 minutes as it used to be you know something could deliver at one could be 18 minutes at two could be 24 minutes at three could be 15 minutes uh, so we're not as rigorously tied into the durations that we used to be and also obviously on BBC Three they're making a lot of short form content as well which they didn't do before but Apart from that, at the moment, I wouldn't say that the change in technology is affecting us in scripted comedy too much. But it's something, obviously, we're incredibly mindful of. And if we don't start thinking about the way that people are consuming content, you know, we'll, we'll get lost. Do you, and I don't know if you, you can't probably quote exact numbers, but do you know if people watch an episode of an average TV show more on demand than on, like, as in when it's showing naturally? Well, it depends what show it is and on yeah. what channel and at what time. Okay. I mean, no, by and large, I would say, I don't know exact numbers, but I think catch-up is probably between 10 and 20% of viewing figures. So, and that, you know, that probably gets bigger as you go from BBC One to BBC Two to BBC Three. Say, take a BBC One comedy, you'll probably get, you know, you might get three million watching it live as it goes out, and then maybe an extra half a million to a million watching it on catch-up. That's really interesting. I, I assumed it would be more like fifty percent or something or something higher, just because, like I said, of the convenience of it. And yeah. The fact that, and the fact that people watch stuff. I see it every day when I get on the train in the morning. Yeah. Everyone's everyone's not looking at people. Yeah. They're looking at their phone. Yeah. And, and it's fine because I'm not above it. But it's like how I just wonder how that's affecting society. Well, I think maybe that I don't know. Maybe that's an age and demographic thing. I think you know the vast majority of TV viewers are over fifty. And they're probably still watching, you know, a lot of them are still watching stuff on telly as it goes out. Also, I think there's still, you know, in, in lots of homes across the UK, there's still that lovely family experience of sitting down and watching a programme at nine o'clock on BBC One as a family together. But, yeah, I think it, I think it depends. But I think, um, I think at the moment, catch-up is still a sort of relatively small amount. But obviously, the longer something is on catch-up, Obviously, that that percentage is going to get higher and higher and higher. Mm. You know, something something that that was first broadcast ten years ago, and if people have the chance to watch it on catch up over ten years, the percentage of the people that watched it on the original broadcast is going to be smaller as a percentage of the whole. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a view I always tell people is a vanity figure, essentially, after when it's online, mm. because that's always going to go up, and it's a case yeah. of you know, if you got ten thousand views over twenty years, 
not that many. Exactly. And, you know what it's I mean? Exactly that. But exactly it looks that. really good yeah. if it just sort of appears there. Exactly that, yeah. Okay, so your investment in technology as the BBC yeah. is obviously, it keeps trying to stay up with people's trends and yeah. stuff. And that's obviously something, trend-wise, you would need to keep abreast with. Yeah. What kind of trends do you see happening in the next one to five years in terms of TV? Oh, God, uh, I just don't know. I mean, I mean, the honest answer is in five years, I don't think TV will be hugely different from how it is now. You know, Maybe there'll be a, li- a few little changes, but I think the changes that are happening will probably happen over a longer course of time, like 10, 20, 30 years. I think in five years, TV will be pretty similar. I mean, the, tr- the, the trends at the moment are that a lot of money is going into drama, a lot of, particularly a lot, a lot of film money, a lot of the big film talent, writing and directing, is moving into TV because that's where the money is. Uh, you have the big players on the market, the SVODs like Netflix and Amazon, the streaming services, who've come into the market you know, very aggressively with a lot of money and, and uh, you know, building their subscriber bases. But for us, we're still fighting our little corner, uh, making you know comedy shows that we hope people in Britain will love, and I think in five years' time we'll still be doing that. What, what do you think of things like Netflix and and I think Hulu I love Netflix. America? Okay, <laughs> yeah. No, I just, uh, I'm, right, in terms of, um, uh, do you see it as a competition thing, or do you see it as a just a platform? Well, I mean, as it, for the BBC in general. Yeah, it's competition. For us as BBC Studios, as a production house from next year, where we'll be able to sell to them, they're just they're another broadcaster, so they're another means for us to, you know, another hopefully another place that can give us money to make some comedy, another place for us to sell to. But but no, I mean in general, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a lover of TV. I consume all sorts of TV on all sorts of platforms and I think Netflix has some brilliant content. I mean it's got some dodgy stuff as well, like everyone else, which you know, thankfully they or luckily for them they get the chance to bury their stuff. Whereas us at the BBC, you know, we we make stuff some some of it turns out better than others. But we have to put everything out. So there's no there's no hiding from the stuff that doesn't work. Whereas Netflix can uh, you know bung it way down their list, uh, same as Amazon. But you know you know that it's great and it's great that they're putting a lot of money into the market and and making some great content. My my only problem with Netflix is the minute I log in, unless I know what I want to watch, you get lost. It's so overwhelming. Yeah, because it just goes here's yeah. all our content, and you're like. I just wanted a curated feed. Yeah, I don't need this. And stuff. Well, it's quite it's quite rare. I would say for me to just log on to Netflix and you know without a clue, you know, so much of I would say the way we consume stuff these days is done through word of mouth because there's so much choice, there's so many options that you'd go mad otherwise. So what you what tends to happen is you know your friends on Facebook say, oh, have you seen The Crown or have you seen Westworld or whatever else is out at the moment? Crazy ex girlfriend and. If you haven't, you watch it, you know? So I go onto Netflix probably more, more often than not specifically to watch something. Yeah, and in terms of word of mouth, obviously social media has got much bigger yeah. in the last couple of years. And what what do you do in terms of, first of all, monitoring social media for your yeah. shows, yeah. but also in terms of trying to find other shows that may, or other writers that maybe you're interested in? Well, a lot of stuff. I mean, we, you know, I... When most of our shows go out, I watch them pretty compulsively on Twitter. <laughs> See what people. I think Twitter is usually a pretty good barometer of what people, uh, whether people like stuff or don't. It used to be forums, but when people go on forums, it's because they have something to say. So it either means they're wildly positive or wildly negative. It doesn't feel like a very fair reflection. Whereas when people are on Twitter, they literally just tweet what they're thinking at any given moment. So you get you get quite a fair reflection of a show, I think, on Twitter, and you get some good instant feedback. 
we have a BBC comedy uh, Twitter feed and and social media account, which is really useful for us to you know keep in touch with viewers and and let them know about what we're doing. And then in terms of looking for writers, yeah, I mean you you, you never know you might come across someone. I developed the the first script of Catastrophe. When was that? Like again, maybe you know two or three years ago, and knew nothing about Rob Delaney other than his Twitter feed. I was followed him on Twitter and thought he was hilarious. So I thought, yeah, let's do a script with him. So yeah, it's a, it's a great new way for people to try out voices and characters and stuff. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I find the problem. So I was I, my day job. I write jokes for Twitter for different brands and oh, people right, and stuff. Okay. So that's why I always find social media really right. fascinating because it's such a a weird way of connecting with people. Yeah. And in many ways, I think it's replaced a lot of friendships for people. Like because you can spend an hour watching someone's YouTube channel or, or something like that in place of meeting up with an actual person. Yeah. You can just do it in your underwear at home. You yeah, don't have to yeah, actually yeah. go out. Yeah. Know, which yeah. is. I love it. I mean, I do it all the time. Yeah. So for me, it's kind of interesting that social media plays a part in your job in that way. And also, I read a really interesting article on, uh, I think it was The Drum, where they were talking about the way people tweet during shows. And I remember I was doing, I can't name what channel it was, but I was working for them live tweeting during a show. And I kept having arguments with them saying that they, they wanted the show to trend during the time it was on. And I said, but then you're not watching the show. Yeah. You're watching the screen. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. want people to trend before and after, surely. Yeah. And I remember it was uh, Inside Number 9. They did a track of how many people were talking during it. Yeah. And very few people were. But they, That's because they were engrossed. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I wondered whether this comes into your mind when you're selling it whether you're like oh people are going to have loads of things to say about this or, or nah, I, I, I promise you I just don't think about stuff like that when selling stuff okay. I literally it, I know it, so, it sounds boring I just think about is this funny is this a, is this a good funny thing that I love who do you think is the most underrated person in the television industry there's so many that don't get noticed I think editors do an incredible job and rarely get talked about okay what is the most interesting thing you do that no one ever gets to see I think when I sit in the edit and look at the uh, rushes of stuff, rushes are fascinating. You get to see all the different variations of actors' performances uh, and no one ever gets to see anything but the final cut. Okay. And if you had one bit of advice for a writer who wanted to get something seen by the BBC that you haven't already said in this podcast, what would it be? Get a good agent that loves your work and is brilliant at championing you. Okay, cool. Thank you very much. For no coming. worries. Thank you. Cheers. That was Chris. A shorter pod today than usual, but no means less informative. I loved his honesty and thoughts on the way the TV will stay pretty much the same in spite of the technological investments as well as the way forward for the BBC Studios, which is something I think more comedians and writers should really be keeping an eye on, even if they have little to no interest in writing for TV or getting on it in general. I just think the way that TV viewers and the way that people consume and see stuff, especially in comedy on TV, and how it trickles into the live viewers and the audiences that you get at gigs and at your shows, I just think it's very much worth keeping an eye on the developments on things like that. I'd just like to say a big, big thank you for Chris for taking part. And if you'd like to do the same thing, you can find all the links to his social media in my show notes or at my website, which is simoncain.co.uk. If you have a minute, it is, for me, amazing and humbling that busy industry people take the time to answer our questions so do give him a shout out and say thank you if you appreciate or value any of the things that he said in this or any of the questions that you submitted that I managed to ask him if you'd like to ask future guest questions please join the Facebook group which is called RC Industry Podcast and it's on Facebook obviously if you'd like to support the show please do consider sharing the link with someone that you think will get some value out of it or subscribing in iTunes or YouTube 
And if you'd like to give some sort of monetary donation, you can do that via PayPal on my website, which is simonkane.co.uk, or giving an ongoing donation via Patreon. Before I forget, quick plug for some of the things I'm working on personally outside of podcasting. If you are in Leicester and you would like to see a work-in-progress version of my new show, which is called Laughter is the Best Placebo, at 9pm at The Exchange. It's a free show, so pay what you want on exit, and it would really be nice to meet some of you there. Also, the day before that, in Leicester, at Pat's Pizzeria, I'm doing our third live Q&A podcast with a bunch of Midlands promoters. So if you would like to come down to that, if you're a performer, a comedian a person who wants to get into comedy, a person who wants to get into promoting, any of those things, please look up the details. They're in the Facebook group and they're on my website. Please come down and support. Both of them are free entry and the podcast one actually isn't a donation thing at all. So if you want to donate, you have to do it on my website. Additional to that, my LGBTQ night is running in London on the 12th of February at Angel Comedy Club and there are still a few tickets left at the Bill Murray so please come down if you can make it like I said there aren't a massive amount of tickets left but it would be great if it could sell out so if you can afford five pounds to come down and support that that'd be great if you want to know more about that night check it out on my website all the details are there thank you if you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear from more tv industry people first of all do give me some suggestions for who you think would be great in the podcast group. Also, if you scroll back, you can find an episode of Ian Coyle, who is the comedy commissioner at Dave TV, Graham Smith, who runs Grand Scheme Media, who are very similar to BBC Studios in terms of trying to get ideas off people and then package them up and sell them to different channels. Obviously, Grand Scheme are very different in terms of the operation and the way they work, but it's a very interesting parallel company to just look into if you're interested in anything that was talked about here. Just give it, just scroll back. If you can't find them for some reason, you can go to my website and there is a list on there. Just click the button that says TV people and then they're all in one section that you can just scroll through and find. But for now, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for sharing and thank you very much for donating if you do. And I'll see you all in about 15 days time. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.